Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning and um, appreciate the welcome, Cody, the introduction, uh, memorizing four of our girls' names. That's pretty good. Some days I don't even get that right. Uh, so good work. And my wife Jennifer's here too. We have two in college, as you mentioned, uh, that, that they're, they're sort of the uh, exiles. They stayed in Indiana and uh, we pray for them for their redemption daily, <laughs> uh, but they're doing great. Uh, Jack and Ellie are our two oldest. Uh, so we do have one boy, uh, but it's good to be with you all. Uh, and so great to see a show of hands, so many of you who are connected uh, to our mission at Gordon, and uh, look forward to chatting with you afterward. Um, we have a couple of our trustees who are part of the, the body here, uh, Lisa Forkner and John Sargent. And so uh, we've heard many good things about the gospel work that's done here at South Shore Baptist. So it's a joy to be with you and to get into the word together this morning. Uh, I, I do want to just, you know, by way of introduction, talk a little bit about that transition uh, that our family made. Um, you know, we, we moved here from Indiana, and we've actually moved around a little bit. I've mostly worked in academic uh, work at different colleges over the years, and um, so our family is uh, accustomed to having to adjust to a totally new part of the country. That's, that's something we've gone through, but uh, we've, we've lived in the Midwest, we've lived in the South, we lived in the Deep South in Florida, but we never lived in New England. And so, you know, for New Englanders, it means we're not from around here. And, uh, and so we hear that a lot. And, and oftentimes, um, uh, you know, we're still learning this. There's sort of a, um, I, think it's, I think it's born out of a, a concern, but it, there's almost a pity or an arrogance about this question. People will say, are you doing okay? Are you doing all right? Are you figuring things out? You're from the Midwest, right? And, uh, it's, you know, we try to say, well, you know, we wear shoes. We, we, you know, we're not totally unsophisticated people uh, in the hinterland out there. But uh, most people have been very friendly, very kind to us. And we've had such a warm welcome, especially uh, to the community at Gordon and, uh, and, and the, the good people there, the good work that's done there. So it's been a joy for us to, to become... Uh, not New England. We know it takes generations to actually be New Englanders. We've been told the rules, so we're not assuming anything, but we're happy to be here, and we're, we're actually really enjoying uh, life on the North Shore, which we, we know is a different country than the South Shore, but we've really enjoyed it. We've really enjoyed it. Um, well, I want to talk today about uh, the, the power of the cross, the title of the message for today, the power of the cross. And we're going to look at um, a, a, an exchange in uh, 1 Corinthians where the scripture points to uh, some admonition for the early church that I think is really relevant for us today. But we'll see that the power of the cross is really only evident when we empty ourselves of our own uh, desire to, to, to use our own strength, our own wisdom, our own reasoning. Uh, we have to empty all that to come to the cross. Uh, so uh, let, let me uh, start with reading the passage. This is 1 Corinthians uh, and it's a long passage, but I want to make sure we read through it all. We'll start in verse 10, chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, and we'll go to the end of the chapter, verse 31. If you have your Bible, you can read along with me. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there's a rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. 
Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one could say you were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The word shows us here a paradox, an irony, if you will, comparing wisdom with the foolishness of the cross for those who lean on their own human strength and human wisdom. We start with this, this first section of the passage where Paul's addressing some divide in the church at Corinth. And the divide has happened uh, because people are starting to follow different teachers. Uh, now, we could compare this to the age in which we live today. We live in difficult times, to be sure, and you could make the case that our world's more divided today than at any point in history. We oftentimes think of technology as the blame for this. Modern technology has, in a sense, shrunk the world, uh, figuratively speaking, that the communication, the, the way that we get information happens in an instant. The idea uh, that, that many of you can remember, and I remember when I was a, a child having a pen pal, where I would scratch out a little letter with my messy handwriting and lick the envelope and put a stamp on it, put it in the mail. A couple of months later, this pen pal might write me back. Today, that happens in a breeze of a text message. We connect with people around the globe who we may not ever actually meet in person, and we exchange ideas, we exchange photos, we exchange uh, concepts and, and understandings of the world. So we might think of that technology as shrinking the world, bringing us closer together. It could be 
that technology is an impulse that brings more unity. This week, we witnessed the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And many of you, like, like me, may have taken an interest in this. And you might have turned on your television to watch the news feed of what they were hearing and seeing as reporters were embedded in different parts of the country. But you may have also gone to social media. And on social media, you would not have seen necessarily television cameras or professional journalists, but everyday people with a cell phone, filming, reporting, giving pictures of people in bunkers, hiding out in subways, hiding out from the attacks. One news anchor, as I was watching, suggested that this may be the first conventional war that's covered more by people with their mobile devices than by actual reporting, because we can get that information in an instant. And yet this smaller world, while it can draw us together, while it can, in the case of the attack this week, it probably brings us to our knees and brings us to a point of compassion to pray for those people who are under attack, it's also true that that technology doesn't always unite us. Our technology today may be the, the easiest way or the strongest temptation to assert our independence from other people. We split into factions based on our followers or our feeds. We align ourselves with particular causes or cheer for the Indianapolis Colts or the New England Patriots. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with whether we use technology or, or, or no technology at all. There's nothing wrong with following things that we're interested in. And just as this passage talks about the, the believers in the early church at Corinth following different teachers, there's nothing necessarily wrong with following different teachers. But the admonition here is that it can become an idol to us. It's not the technology itself usually, but how are we using that to assert our independence? And is that idolatry? Does that draw us away from unity within the body of Christ? Technology is not required for those divisions to thrive because those divisions come from a deeper impulse within each of us out of our own sin to assert our self-reliance or our self-righteousness. Verse 10, uh, the prayer that all of you would agree with one another in what you say, and there be no divisions among you. You'd be perfectly united in mind and thought. This is important in the early church, and it's important today, because the church is diverse. The church, particularly as, as Paul's writing this letter, he's writing about those who are Jewish and those who are Greek or Gentiles. That's a, a clear divide with centuries of history, even in the first century church. So to be united, first of all, is to draw people together from different backgrounds, different classes, different ethnic groups. It was also important in the early church to be united because that church was being persecuted and was headed into greater chapters of persecution by the Roman state. This was the earliest days of the church. It was creating the doctrine, the beauty of, of the, the majesty of the church that we call back to today. 
That unity was part of God's design, and it's part of his design for us today, that we wouldn't be divided by quarreling. We wouldn't be divided by divisions. You can look at 1 Corinthians 12 or Ephesians 4 or many other passages in the New Testament that talk about the body of Christ and the way that each of our gifts and our abilities and our diversity of thought add to the richness of Christ's bride here on earth, the church. So it's not a call to become a clone or to become unthinking or unthoughtful. And it's not a call necessarily that would say we can't follow good teachers. Now, who are these people that Paul mentions in these, these first few verses? Chloe, Apollo, Cephas. Chloe, uh, biblical scholars believe, was a, a woman that helped to lead some churches in Corinth and had people who worked with her in this effort to communicate with Paul. Paul wrote this while he was stationed at Ephesus And so some of the messengers from Chloe's uh, ministry, we might call it, came to report to Paul, oh boy, Paul, they're not getting along. You got this group over here who says they're your disciples. You got this other group who says they're disciples of Apollos. You got this other group following Cephas, that's Peter, Simon Peter. And then some just say, we only follow Christ. But the point was they had nothing to do with one another. The body of Christ, think of that early church, not even a generation removed from Christ being here on the earth, with Paul as an apostle helping to guide and and shape that church, and already there's a divide. Now, you know much about the reputation of Paul and of Peter, these early apostles that helped form the church. Peter, who Christ said, I'll build my church on you, the rock, Peter. Apollos was a a Jew who had been converted to Christianity and uh, became adept at arguing with those who doubted, with skeptics, arguing from the the Jewish law and pointing to the Christ. He was what today we might think of as an apologist, very well-known, very intelligent, very persuasive. So Paul, Peter, Apollos, these are worthy people to follow. But The error here was not in following after good teachers. The error was in making an idol out of the fact that they were the disciples of Apollos or the disciples of Peter or the disciples of Paul. You might think of this as a partisan divide in the early church. The church couldn't pull it all together. And Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, don't let these quarrels break you apart. Strive toward that unity that comes in Christ. Now, today, what does this look like? What's the parallel? Do we break into factions? Again, we might say, you might be tempted to say, well, there's different denominations and different churches and different uh, traditions. Again, that's not necessarily the error here unless we make that such an idol, unless we make that such a priority that we allow it to break off fellowship with others who claim the name of Christ. Today, we oftentimes see, even within the church, that our own politics, our own opinions on state affairs can divide us from other believers with whom we disagree. 
We tend to follow particular causes or particular ideas such that sometimes it cuts off our ability to practice our faith and fellowship with other Christians. At the root of this desire, at the root of this idolatry, is our own desire to be right, superior to others. And make no mistake about it, this isn't just a bad habit, this is the root of sin in our hearts. That sin that strives to make ourselves worthy, that strives to make ourselves superior, that strives to make ourselves powerful and wise. And this is the admonition in this, in this text. Our sin and our wickedness manifests itself not only in ways that we break the law and break our bonds by sinning in overt ways, but it also manifests itself in our own self-righteousness. That root of sin that says to the Lord, I don't need your strength. I can do this on my own. It may very well be that self-righteousness for believers and unbelievers is the strongest motivation of our day, of our age. The idea that I can cling to an idea or cling to a position that allows me to condemn others, that allows me to go into a public venue and mock those with whom I disagree. Ridicule and cynicism are the economy of our era. So, so Paul says in, in verse 17 and 18 uh, that Christ didn't send him to baptize but to preach the gospel. And, and this is fascinating that, that he says in verse 17 that he's preaching the gospel without wisdom and without eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now we know something about Paul's pedigree. Philippians 3 is where uh, Paul wrote to the church of Philippi that he was the best trained among the Jewish scholars, that he was born in the right lineage, that he was from the right tribe. Everything about Paul could make the case for worldly wisdom and worldly power. And yet he says in this verse, I preach this without eloquence because I don't want to take the credit for the way that the Lord works. Paul, among anyone in the early church, could claim his own eloquence and his own wisdom as the reason for his preaching. Well, the second part of our passage, verses 18 to 31, give us a contrast to this worldly wisdom that divides us. And it's in the cross that we see in these verses. It's in the cross that power comes that actually can bring unity. So when we think about unity in the body of Christ, let's, let's just be clear about what we're, we're, we're asking for here. The unity in the body of Christ is not because we're all similar in our habits or our hobbies. Our interest in Jesus Christ is not merely... Uh, something we, we like or have an affinity for. It's not just something we have in common. The unity that we have in Jesus Christ comes because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that cleanses us from our sin. That cleansing happens because of the miracle of the cross. And this is the message uh, in verse 18, the message of the cross that the scripture tells us is foolishness to those who don't believe, to those who are perishing. 
the wisdom of the cross and the power of the cross doesn't make any sense by worldly standard. We have this reference to Isaiah 29, uh, that, that those who are intelligent will lose their intelligence, that the things that are foolish will make more sense. Now, as, as a president of a college, I spend a lot of time thinking about the way that faith and learning interact together. Within Christian college circles, we, we actually do a lot of scholarship on this. And for years, I was a professor, and, and uh, would, I, I taught classes on faith learning integration. I wrote papers on faith learning integration. I actually led seminars for other faculty on how to think about this, because it's not as simple as it might sound. When you, as a professor, go through training at great universities, and learn the, the, the depths of insight and research into a particular topic, a particular subject, it can, it can be very difficult to then figure out how your Christian faith informs learning about that subject. And it's not just because in some subjects there are assertions made that are contrary to the gospel or contrary to Christianity. That does happen. But sometimes it's just difficult to work in a realm in education where you're told to use only the tools of reason, only the tools of your own wisdom, only the tools of, of logic to make your case. And that tension for me illustrates what this passage is pointing to. The idea that our Christian faith, the cross itself, makes no sense by worldly standards. The passage talks in, in verses 20 to 25. The teacher of the law, the, uh, the, the philosopher, as one translation calls it, the philosopher of the age. The greatest thinkers of the day in that society built on classical understanding, that, that society that engaged with great questions. Paul, we know, entered into those discussions. And yet to those who were the smartest of their day, the cross made no sense. There was no logic there. We might see this again today in our modern world, in an age marked by the Enlightenment, which has pushed out religious faith as superstition and called all people to only use reason, to only use the wisdom of the age to make sense of the world. The message of the cross that God sent his son who lived a perfect life, who was truly God and man incarnate, who went to the cross as a pitiful sacrifice, treated like the lowest criminal, tortured in public, mocked, spit upon, given a, 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 an unworthy death. In this season, as we begin to turn our hearts toward Easter, we think about that sacrifice. And the foolishness of that to the world. And yet we know the story continues because the Lord was resurrected so that we might have a pathway to redemption, so that we might be called and reconciled with God. That calling of the cross that seems so foolish to the world is truly the only power that we have as people who believe the only power that really exists in the world at all for redemption. 
The message of the cross, the power of that message, is lost on the philosopher of the age, lost on the teachers of the law, lost even foolishness to those who are perishing. It's a stumbling block to Jews who saw the Messiah coming in great glory to reign over the earth. And to those who are marked by philosophical wisdom, it made no sense whatsoever. So how does the cross unite us? How does that power work within us? As we all come to the cross and we empty ourselves of sin and we ask for the Lord to redeem and sanctify us, only in that means of emptying ourselves do we have the assertion of the power of the cross. No faction, no wisdom, no earthly status gets you uh, an easy pass at the cross. There's no fast lane or express lane for those who are smarter, who have advanced degrees, or who come from a noble family or have wealth. We all come to the cross bearing only our sin and Christ's sacrifice for us there. God's foolishness in the world's eyes is greater than our wisdom, and God's weakness of the cross in the world's eyes is greater than our own strength. When we lean on our own strength and our own wisdom, as we seek our own achievement, our own success, as we seek to make ourselves greater than others, as we seek to align ourselves with what we think is the, the best pathway, the best teaching, the best organization, we lean on that too, too much and it becomes an idol. And at the root of that is our own self-reliance and self-righteousness. And again, that is not just a bad habit. It springs out of our own desire for ourselves. It springs out of our sin. This verse, uh, this passage, points us to the idea that those who see the cross as foolish are truly enemies of the cross. And in Philippians 3, verses 18 and 19, it says, For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. For those people governed by their own desire for power, governed by their stomach, by essentially their, their most base level needs, of course the cross would be foolishness. John Stott wrote about this passage that as we think about the power of the cross, what the cross suggests for us, the cross being that pathway to strength and wisdom, there's really no way to reconcile having confidence in our own wisdom, our own understanding of good teachers or, or factions that we want to cling to, and also clinging to the sacrifice of the cross. The cross truly calls us to empty ourselves of our own standing, of our own status, of our own achievements, of our own wealth, and to repent of those sins that continue to weigh us down. And ultimately, what's the point? What's the purpose? As verse 31 says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is for his glory. Not just for our own achievement, 
not so that we might be saved only for our own good, but that we might glorify God and boast in the miraculous work of the cross. Do you know that power today, when you think of the cross, does your heart lift with knowledge of the power of that cross? Are you enlivened by the work of the Spirit in your heart? None of us will know the power of the cross. None of us will truly know Christ's grace if we maintain that we deserve it. It truly takes a miraculous work to empty our hearts, to empty our minds of anything we cling to as giving us a justification or a right to be forgiven. It's only through the cross that we have that pathway to power and wisdom. Our goodness, our class, our status, our intelligence, our wealth, our achievement, strength and power, all those things as good as they are today, as good as they are in this world, and, and to be sure, as, as good as you steward those and use those for, for Christ's name to be lifted up, they ultimately can become the stumbling block that keeps you from fully understanding God's will in your life. All of our accolades are worthless in gaining the redemption that the cross provides to us. So when we think of the cross and we think of the miracle that's, that's contained there, the power that's contained there, it should call us to repentance. It should call us to, to ask the Lord to seek, uh, to search our hearts and help us seek the ways to, to yield to him and to pray that that sin would be cast out from us. It takes admitting that we are weak and that even in our wisdom, uh, we... we we have to rely ultimately on the cross. And only in that purifying work of the cross do we really have an opportunity for unity in the body of Christ. That purifying work that would take away our own impulse toward self-righteousness, our own impulse toward uh, being superior to others, to dividing out, to cutting people off because we follow one faction over another. It's only in that repentance and only in holiness that we can claim the power that the cross has for us. And that's my prayer for each of us today. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word and the way that it purifies and instructs us. We're thankful for the the power of the cross that may seem like foolishness to the world. We pray that you would help us to fully realize and understand that power. Break us of our own tendencies towards sin, towards self-righteousness. Break us from the tendency and temptation to divide and to push others away. To see ourselves as superior to others. Give us the heart uh, purified by your spirit so that we might be used for your glory and for your good. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.